central bank dictatorship can be stopped. And Canadian detainee shows China was right about spying. Coming up on today's Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 30th of November 2023. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party researcher Richard Barden. Welcome, Richard. Thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, we're going to be discussing the Reserve Bank reform legislation, which was tabled yesterday. So stay tuned. There's big news updates coming in thick and fast on that front from our uh, people in Canberra on the ground. And then we're going to discuss a lawsuit. Um, You might remember the case of the two Michaels who were detained in China, uh, but revelations from from one of the Michaels at least uh, shows that they were involved in spying. So this is going to have interesting uh, implications. Now, don't forget to, in order to help us get this show out as widely as possible and particularly to escalate our campaign to stop um, central bank dictatorship at the moment, to share the show as widely as you can, put a comment below. It all helps to get the algorithm circulating it. Um, You can share on social media. Uh, You should subscribe yourself. We're going to be mentioning certain updates coming out. And if you subscribe and ring the notification bell, we'll alert you to that new and upcoming material. Uh, And you can also, in the box just below, if you're watching on YouTube, you can find a link where you can click to support us and our endeavours by donating. And you can also even subscribe to our Australian Alert Service, which is where all the background information is and some you know really important information that we've been putting out over recent months particularly on the background of this new RBA reform legislation um, which we'll get straight into in our first topic central bank dictatorship can be stopped so um, we have had crucial updates which I'll get to in a moment that show we can win this fight this is really great there's some great news in the offing Um, But first of all, just to mention that yesterday in the House of Representatives, Treasurer Jim Chalmers did indeed, as we um, had got wind of in the last couple of weeks, table uh, the legislation, which is to um, fulfil the recommendations of the Reserve Bank Australia Review Panel, um, which over the course of the year has made recommendations to allow the Reserve Bank to become more independent and transparent. And there's a whole bunch of recommendations, but we've focused on um, just two of those recommendations, which is to um, reinforce the independence of the Reserve Bank by taking away the Treasurer's power to override decisions by the Reserve Bank, which has never been used, as we've said in previous shows, Uh, But nonetheless, they want to take out the possibility that Mm -hmm. it might be used, at least the bankers do, particularly with a new global financial crash coming with the necessity to implement bail-in, which they rammed through Parliament um, on the voices a few years back, uh, to steal people's savings and investments in order to prop up the banking system at a moment of crisis. Um, So, yeah, the RBA has to be given full authority that so-called independence that is being discussed is not independence at all, but subservience to the international banking elite headquartered at the Bank 
for international settlements in Basel, Switzerland, and adjuncts um, and overseers of that process from the Bank of England to the International Monetary Fund. It's all part of that slime mould, you could call mm. it, um, that is dictating to us. It dictated the bail-in legislation. It's dictating this top-down to take crucial decisions in this coming period out of the hands of elected politicians mm. and put them into the hands of uh, economic technocrats. Yeah, to take us back to the conditions that caused the Great Depression. Because as we've said, but just to recap quickly, as we said before, that these powers were legislated in 1945 by John Curtin's, uh, John Curtin and Ben Chifley mm. uh, based on the original Banking Royal Commission of 1936-37, yep. which said that, yes, the government, uh, according to the way the Constitution um, assigns powers to uh, you know, the, the state and federal you know, Commonwealth governments, that, yes, the Commonwealth government is the final arbiter, has the say over uh, monetary policy, over any you know, matters to do with the national currency, which is what we're talking about here. And they owned the bank, the Commonwealth Bank, as it was then, the Reserve Bank now, that function. Mm. Um, and, yeah, so um, it was found that the governor of the Commonwealth Bank excuse me, Commonwealth Bank, who refused instructions from the Treasurer, uh, had been wrong to do so and that that was never to happen again. Mm. And so they legislated to that effect in 1945. And as you said, it's never been formally invoked, but just the threat of it being there um, has ensured that for better or worse, government policy was followed. Mm. And uh, and the reason, uh, as, we, as we've also pointed out before, that they've Okay, if you've never used this, why are you trying to throw it away? Mm. Well, it's because senators like yes. Malcolm Roberts from One Nation, like Jared Rennick from the uh, uh, Liberal uh, LNP in uh, Queensland, um, and Nick McKim from the Greens, have all been asking for a year now, why aren't you using this power? That's right. You know, That's why right. Is the gov- has, the government, has the government issued any instructions, hints, directives? Yep. You know, And no, they haven't because they refuse to do their duty. And now they're trying to cut their hands off. They've had the hands-off approach. Now yeah. Chalmers is trying to cut his own hands off. Mm. And it's, it's, becoming, it's coming to the point where it's very hard for the government to ignore what these senators are raising, especially when they're dishing out money to the private banks, mm. left, right and centre, through all kinds of quantitative easing arrangements. Um, but none of that can be directed, as the senators are suggesting, into mm. building our nation, building infrastructure, um, and at the same time, those same private banks are cutting their services to the actual people and businesses in Australia that depend on it to keep the economy going. They're just mm. shutting up shop, leaving town en masse, which, of course, is why um, we've had this campaign to have an inquiry into regional banking closures, which is ongoing, and which, of course, the other big news is that tomorrow morning at 8.50am... Uh, Robert Barwick and Glenn Isherwood will be in Parliament House speaking, testifying to that inquiry, to that committee, um, for the first time that we've testified in Parliament. So this is a really going to be a very big day. Um, by the time you're watching this, that will have happened. So this is where I wanted to point to, you know, subscribing and hitting the notification bell because we will put out video footage of that event um, as soon as we have that available. Um, and, um, yeah, next week's show will give you the full rundown of the sparks that fly as a result of that. 
Um, but coming back to Chalmers legislation, um, so the, the second point, as I mentioned, the first point was uh, re-establishing RBA independence, which is a big feature of this bill. And the second is to take away the RBA's power to determine the lending policy of banks. Um, so those two things are going to be stripped out of existing legislation that governs the RBA. And the, um, I want to play a quick uh, excerpt, a few minutes, of Jim Chalmers announcing this bill, which is... And this is the first time we've now got the copy of the bill. Um, it was tabled yesterday and this is the first we've seen the actual legislation, so we've yet to pour over it and look at what's there and what's not. But it's called the Treasury Laws Amendment Reserve Bank Reforms Bill 2023. Uh, and so we'll just cut to that video of Mr Chalmers. And I call the clerk. Government Business Notice Number 1, Treasury Laws Amendment, Reserve Bank Reforms Bill 2023. Need a call to the Treasurer. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I present the Treasury Laws Amendment, Reserve Bank Reforms Bill 2023 and the explanatory memorandum. And I call the clerk. First reading, a bill for an act to amend the law in relation to the Reserve Bank of Australia and for related purposes. And I call the Treasurer. Thank you, Speaker. I move that this bill be now read a second time. This legislation will strengthen the Reserve Bank's independence, clarify its mandate and modernise its structures. By introducing it today, we are recognising that strong economic institutions are central to a strong economy. And that's why, over the course of the last 18 months, we've been reforming and renewing and refocusing our economic institutions in a considered and methodical way to ensure they are fit for purpose and in the best position to manage the challenges and maximise the opportunities in front of us. And this bill is an important part of that work. These reforms are the biggest undertaken at the Reserve Bank in over three decades. They follow months and months of consultation, including with the RBA, with the opposition and with other stakeholders, internal and external, and much welcome public debate since the release of the Reserve Bank Review in April 2023. The review itself was the product of extensive consultation that included current and former RBA board members and staff, international experts, academics and others. This bill is our opportunity to reform and renew the monetary policy and governance framework of the RBA to ensure it works in the interests of the Australian people and in the interests of their economy. The main components of the bill are all about reinforcing the RBA's independence, <coughs> clarifying its role, including the dual mandate of price stability and full employment and modernising its structure, including by establishing two new boards, one for setting interest rates and the other for governance. Mr Speaker, the bill reinforces the RBA's independence by repealing the government's ability to override the bank's monetary policy decisions. This will strengthen the RBA's monetary policy independence and the credibility of its framework. And while the bank remains accountable to Parliament for its performance and how it exercises its powers, including setting uh, monetary policy. Mr Speaker, in clarifying the RBA's role, the bill mandates that the overarching objective for the bank 
is to, quote, promote the economic prosperity and welfare of the people of Australia both now and into the future. This means legislating the dual mandate of price stability and full employment <clears throat> to make sure the RBA is working in the interests of the country and its people and recognising the crucial role the RBA plays in promoting financial stability. Yep, so there you go. So you can see the context that he's put it in is um, basically uh, reaffirming what we just said, that you know the RBA has to have the power to intervene. He doesn't say because of a crisis, but he talks about the current you know, financial um, environment and so forth. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, they need to usher in these powers that they have the ability to do whatever is necessary to protect the all-important, quote-unquote, financial stability which is also what the bail-in legislation mm. was directed at because saving the financial system is more important than the nation or the people yeah. to these bankers. Yep. Now, and this is, and this is the, the so-called global, not actually global, which is part of the issue, but because um, mm. the majority of the world is, go, is not going along with it anymore and that's, part of why, that's a big part of why they're freaking out. And that's become very clear in, these, in this recent year. Yeah, um, but yeah, that's maintaining the the supranational financial system, not even the banking system in Australia per se, except in as much as it's important to the stability of, the, of their so-called global system. Mm. Now, the good news is that, um, so this was tabled yesterday and last night uh, was a meeting of the what's called the Selection of Bills Committee. And so they look through the bills to see what's going to be debated and so forth over the coming week of Parliament. And this particular bill, the um, Reserve Bank Reforms Bill, was deferred. So that means it's not going to be coming up for a debate or a vote, at least between now and next Wednesday when the committee meets again. So it has been deferred by that committee and the people on that committee which made the decision, no, we're not looking at this right now. Mm. So it's obviously not a complete victory, but it's very good news in the interim that there are a number of MPs on that committee that have said, you know, red alert, red alert warning here, mm. flash, flash, flash. Um, let's put this aside for yeah. the moment. So they've sat it next to the too hard basket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, We've got to get it into the too hard basket yeah. and then get it ditched off the side of the table. <laughs> yep. Um, so we can do it. We absolutely can do it. And the point is that um, Robbie and Glen Isherwood are in Canberra right now and they've already been getting feedback. Um, they bumped into one advisor to an MP in the corridors of Parliament House who said, oh, are you guys behind this campaign that's getting us all these emails and phone calls about the RBA? And we said, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, and also, actually, Chalmers, we'll put up some photos here, um, Chalmers Electorate Office, our uh, crew up in South Queensland with Jan Pacallis went and held um, a bit of a demo and did organising out the front of his office and they covered all the surrounding shopping centres and area uh, with flyers. They had big signs and banners. You can see the one which we've used in the alert service too. You know, the, the RBA claims it only has one tool mm. uh, to, you know, affect the economy in terms of, uh, you know, tackling inflation and so forth, which is interest rates. Well, we're declaring that their tool is Jim Tarmers. Yeah. <laughs> So obviously he wasn't too happy about that, but what was interesting is that they 
they knew we were like that. Well, they didn't know we were coming, but as soon as we got there, they knew what was in order. So they put up a sign in the window which said, "This office is currently closed for walk-ins,"、mm. because they knew that people were not happy about this and would be walking in and would be wanting to、um, make their opinion clear、um, to Chalmers and his office.、Um, So yeah, the impact of this is being felt, and we know that there have been thousands upon thousands of people that have responded to this mobilisation、um, and called not only Chalmers but the opposition leader and their own members of parliament. And those mem- local members of parliament will feed back that pressure to Chalmers if they get enough heat. And if you haven't already done so, we'll put the links below that you can follow through and join in in that campaign. Um, now. Um, I wanted to mention also that Senator Malcolm Roberts、uh, has written an article about this in the、uh, Spectator Australia. Is Treasurer Chalmers the Pontius Pilate of interest rates? So he makes the point that there's likely more interest rate rises coming, and that he said when people complain, the Albanese government will be able to stand back and say that there is nothing they can do about it if this legislation is passed, because it will take away that.、Mm. Um, Uh, oversight that the government has over the RBA, he said. In old language, we'd call this a cop out. Labor are terrified that interest rates could sink them, so they're basically handing power to the central banks.、Um, he said, "What will the Chalmers-led Treasury do as interest rate hikes force Australians out of their homes? How much of that real estate will end up in the hands of the banks?" And we're going to talk about that point a little bit later. Um, in um, terms of a new um, uh, piece of lingo that has come from veteran financial journalist、uh, Alan Kohler,、um, that yeah, he's called the bankocracy、um, what is currently prevailing over、mm. the Australian economy.、Um, so we'll come back to, to that in a moment. But I want to just firstly go through、uh, the environment in which. Chalmers is tabling this legislation. Why we have an absolutely brilliant chance not only to stop it, but to use this as the leverage to turn it all on its head and to give the power back to governments to use a national bank to create the credit to rebuild the country and to do what Curtin and、mm. Chifley and King O'Malley,、um, who designed the first Commonwealth Bank, wanted to do. And have banking for the purpose of nation building, which is what it should be for, and that's the only thing it should be for, and to facilitate things within that, such yeah, yeah. as funding and credit for business and enterprise, etc. Yeah. And before anyone says、oh, communism, no, it's、yeah. like banks. You still have private banks; they still make money.、Mm. They just have to earn it. Yeah, and they、that's, have to compete with a public bank, so that that becomes a yardstick for them if they don't provide the service that they. That a public yeah, bank、exactly. would provide, they're not going to get any custom.、Um, so last week's show, you and Robbie talked about this article by Michelle Bowes、um, for News.com.au, and she'd exposed this story about an ANZ whistleblower. We'll put the article up.、Um, whistleblower alleges ANZ is deliberately pushing customers out of branches. So he'd come out and said, "Look, you know, we are instructed not to serve people. Send、mm. them to the ATM. Help them do it online." And then that justifies the closure of branches because oh no one's using、yeah. the teller, and that, and it just it boggles my mind that the reason he eventually quit, just said, threw it in and said you know get stuffed I quit, is that he was、uh, chastised by his supervisor for serving a 
a vision impaired, an elderly vision impaired, so a blind old lady who couldn't use the ATM, so he served her at the counter. Yeah. And that got, got him the black trouble. mark mm. because because oh we're trying to keep face we're trying to keep teletransactions down this month. Mm-hmm. Are you kidding me? Yeah. And so he quit. Um, but the net, it's really fascinating. Michelle Bowes knows she's on a, a winner here. Mm. This art, this stuff is getting traction. She got flooded with responses to that and wrote another article the next day. Customers fuming over ANZ service levels and branch closures because she basically asked for people, you know, if you've mm. got some updates on this story, let me know if you've got a similar experience. But she's done no less than five articles and I might not have them all. Um, so that same day on the 22nd of November that she wrote the second article. She did a, f- a third follow-up, former ANZ, staff back whistleblower, uh, former ANZ staff back whistleblower claims. And then a couple of days later, customers lash out at ANZ over withholding their money, which said that angry customers have hit out at ANZ, accusing the bank of deliberately making it difficult for them to access their own money and interrogating them about why they want it. So she probably feels like she's just pulling a thread and suddenly this whole mm. edifice is coming apart because um, for any journalist that wades into this territory, as Dale Webster, the independent journalist, knows, oh, my God, it's a huge, huge mm. story and the population are angry as hell. Yeah. And that's why this, this whole initiative by Chalmers is going to backfire big time. Um, and then we have on the 28th of November... Bank customers claim they are being punished with high fees for branch use. So, yep. yet another factor. Yeah, and this is what started bringing the other banks into it, which, as we as we said, as Robbie said on this show, uh, you know, guarantee they are all doing this. Mm-hmm. All Absolutely. the big banks, because um, they're all the same. They they all have exactly the same model with a you know a little a few little tweaks and things, like Coles and Woolworths, you know, different color label. Yeah, exactly. You know, call things different names. They do a bit more of this and a bit less of that. But you know, like NAB does more business lending, CBA does more mortgages. But they're otherwise they're the same. Mm. It's a cartel. Yeah, that's right. Now have a look at this. This is a um, clip from Channel Nine News the other night, earlier in the week. Um, talking about how cash is on life support and even citing two politicians, um, Bob Catter, who is no no surprise that he would be defending cash, but also Liberal MP from Victoria, Russell Broadbank, and both making really excellent points. Cash is on life support. The Reserve Bank now predicts its demise could be less than three years away as a growing number of Australians never use notes and coins. Finance editor Chris Kohler explains. Flooding into the nation's food courts at lunchtime today and there was really only one way to pay. Should have options, not many options for cash. It's always card, card, card. A new Reserve Bank data shows the end is near. Card use has surged while cash has plunged, now accounting for just 13% of all payments. At the current rate of decline, cash will be dead within three years. The trend of the last few years implies that we're going to head somewhere close to zero. And really what we're going to see is a stabilisation at some point. Our whole community is now vulnerable and nobody knows. Federal Liberal MP Russell Broadbent says recent outages at Optus and ANZ highlight the need to keep cash alive. It's one thing to knock out cheques and uh, get efficiencies in the economy, but to take away cash from people takes away their freedom their freedom of movement and their freedom of activity. Bob Catter, meanwhile, is not only aiming to keep cash, but wants new coins without the Queen's portrait, adding the surveillance on digital payments is a growing concern. If you, know, you go into uh, no electricity, 
then you can't use your plastic magic. Uh, but worse still is the last freedom is gone. We're now in 1984. Of course, all these cashless payments come at a cost. The average surcharge is between half a percent and one percent. So as we tap more, the hidden costs also rise. Something the government says it's on top of. We've got to continually ensure that we've got regulation which is up to date with changes in payment technology. That's why we're introducing new legislation into Parliament this week on that. But at lunchtime, all of those worries sat behind the need for a speedy payment, regardless of the downsides. Chris Kohler, Nine News. So, you know, that's the kind of attention this is getting. There's a whole host of other coverage. I mean, we just pulled together some articles. I'm just going to show them quickly over the last month or more. Um, so here's one, why rural and regional banks are disappearing from Money Magazine on the 30th of October. Four months ago, Councillor Charlie Sheen, the Mayor of Gundagai, New South Wales, made an emotional plea to NAB. He asked it to reconsider the decision to close the bank's Gundagai branch. And in the article, they report that National Seniors Australia suggests the government considers giving Australia Post a banking licence if that could at least make up for the loss of bank branches in remote areas. Yeah, that's right. So you have this idea popping up as a theme. Um, This article, uh, this is actually a media release from the Liberal Party Victoria. Regional post offices must be protected from cuts because, of course, everything's being thrown back onto the post office. If you can't, Mm. if there's no bank branch, go to the post office. You can do it all there. Of course, you can't do everything. And at at the same time, the cuts that they're referring to is that the board, the new board and executive. Offices of Australia Post are closing post offices yeah, in the midst of all this. That's right. As many so, as they can. Uh, so this release says post offices in rural and regional Victoria could face closures after Australia Post failed to commit to the regulated minimum of 2,500 post offices. The leader of the Nationals, Peter Walsh, wrote to the CEO of Australia Post, Paul Graham, seeking an assurance that rural and regional Victorian post offices would remain open to provide access to vital services like banking, retail, identity and passport services and disaster relief support. But, you know, they're not providing the support that the post offices need to remain Mm. profitable and open, which is, you know, started from when Christine Holgate was ousted, who had been addressing the problem with Bank at Post being properly funded by the banks for which she was, that's that's the crime mm. for which she was ousted because that's what she awarded the watches for, was for yep. the people that did that deal with the banks to make them pay. Yep. No. And when and when they hire a guy to replace her whose nickname in the corporate world is Scissorhands because <laughs> he cuts everything. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know the guy. From all I've heard, he's quite a nice guy in person, but this is how he thinks and this is what he does and that's why they hired mm. him. Yep. And then this other, this next article shows why there's no reason for regional and local bank branches to be closing. This is 1st November. Nambour and Hinterland, Bank of Queensland, grows beyond expectations from the Sunshine Valley Gazette. That's just one example of many. BOQ Nambour and Hinterland's Matt Wall says, We have never seen our branch so busy. And we had the pleasure of increasing the size of the team to cope with demand. So, in other words, if there's not the ANZ approach of Mm. blocking people from using the branch, people are coming in droves. But wait a minute, that nice Miss Bly from the Australian Banking Association told me people aren't going to branches anymore, they don't want them. Mm. Didn't she? Yes, she did. Did I remember right? (laughs) They're all digital now, according to Miss Bly. Um, Now, uh, 18th of November, um, this is an article from ABC Pilbara. 
Tom Price residents find creative banking solutions after Westpac closes bank branch. And there's actually a lot of chatter about this story. It's a really interesting thing that we will follow up. It was also reported on uh, ABC News um, report as well on the 17th of November. But basically, the article reports that since 2017, close to 800 bank branches have been lost in regional and remote Australia. But at one town in Western Australia's Pilbara region, residents have been finding their own workarounds to get their banking done. So they've got various workarounds for the time, but they're also... um, proposing to have the local government provide facilities for banking services. Mm. Now, of course, that can be done through the post office. They're proposing different local government agencies. But the point is there are solutions and, you know, this is all pointing towards some form of public banking Mm. service. Uh, And that article did also discuss the... um, the inquiry that we started up and which is ongoing into regional banking closures. And then um, 13th of November, Commonwealth Bank Maroolbark branch, NAB branch in Mount Waverley to close. Um, so just to point to the fact that more branches are closing despite the banks all making one form of pledge or another to keep their branches open while the inquiry is running. Um, so this article says bank customers in Melbourne's east are lamenting the looming closure of two branches, claiming the banks are putting profits over people. And we also have reports, thanks to Dale Webster, that uh, there are new NAB closures in Scone, which happens to be right in the middle of Barnaby Joyce's electorate. So if you're living in that electorate, make it known to him that you're not happy about that. And Runaway Bay on the Gold Coast, so that's NAB. Um, now, so that, that's the backdrop and, you know, anywhere you go, essentially, if you raise cash, bank branch closures, anything to do with banking, you're going to hear people get angry <laughs> very quickly. Um, this is on people's minds. Um, and yet, you know, the RBA and the Treasurer continue to push, make this push in the direction that's going to see less accountability for the bank's to the people of the country. One of those um, decisions that has just been made, which leads in this direction, is that um, the government has announced, the Treasurer has announced that the new uh, appointment for Deputy Governor of the Reserve Bank Australia is coming straight out of the Bank of England. Mm. Um, This fellow by the name of Andrew Hauser has been asked to come to take that position to, as the AFR put it, guide the Reserve Bank through its overhaul and bring it into line mm. with international standards. International standards, as as decreed by the IMF, where he worked, because um, he's not just Bank of England, he was on, um, I forget which one it was, but one of the one of the IMF's um, man- you know, committees that, that writes these rules and imposes what they call the conditionality on their loans to third world countries to get them deeper in debt the, the, the more they pay. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, these... And, and uh, he's the currently the executive in charge of market operations mm. at, uh, at the uh, Bank of England, you know, the ones who do QE and bail out the banks at the public expense and all of that stuff. That's the international standards they're talking about. Mm, yeah. So what we're talking about here <clears throat> with the Bank of England which spawned the Bank for International Settlements, which wrote the bail-in legislation, which have basically tried to reform everything since the 2008 GFC to put banks and um, the big financiers ahead of people. Um, This apparatus, I mean, this is the 
the dream of the uh, Bank of England head after World War One, Montague Norman, who established a central bankers club, mm. an elite club, which was to make decisions in secret, which is why when we... Uh, Senator Jared Rennick tried to get discussions between the Australian government and the Bank for International Settlements. It, none of it was released by Freedom of Information because it's all meant to be kept secret and the Bank for International Settlements has extreme rules of secrecy. Mm. Anything that takes place within those walls never sees the light of day outside. Yep, which the um, RBA then invokes to say, oh, well, we're not going to tell, you know, we're not going to tell the elected representatives of the Australian people what their bank is doing. Mm and who it's talking to and what plans it's making because because then they wouldn't talk to us anymore. Mm. The BIS wouldn't talk wouldn't wouldn't trust us anymore. Yep. So, so one, that, yeah, that's their priority. That's right. And once you give um, the powers hand them from the government to um, the Bank of England and the Bank for International Settlements, um, they can dictate whatever they want in terms of policy that just then, you know, trickles down to us locally and every other um, uh, jurisdiction, which is a member of that Bank for International Settlements yeah. grouping. Now, um, finally, on this note, I wanted to come back to that notion of bankocracy, which we discussed because, as we'll put this up on the screen, um, this article written by Alan Kohler was headlined, The Economy is Being Driven by a Bankocracy Housing Boom. And the um, the blurb reads, A political conspiracy to increase property values and win votes is being amplified by a banking industry that wants to increase profits. And he basically, he describes in a way that I haven't quite seen anyone put it outside of what we've written, Mm. the way our economy hinges upon a housing bubble that has to be stoked because it's like a Ponzi scheme, basically. It is, essentially, People are buying a house and that money goes into the banks and then those people are attracted by, oh, you know, you can develop this or you can flip it, etc. You can mm. make profits out of it or you can be at yeah. least shown on paper to be a millionaire. You can spend money you don't have because of what they call the wealth effect where you feel richer because your house price mm. goes up. Never mind, it's not a liquid asset. You've got to sell it and either rent or buy another one. And now rents are more expensive than mortgages. Yeah. But if that bubble and the values of houses were to begin to deflate, the whole thing would implode in on itself. Mm-hmm. So the government you know, teamed with the banks. And of course, if it imploded on itself, the banks would lose a lot of money as well. Um, so they have to work together to keep stoking that bubble to get more people into the Ponzi scheme. No one's mm. going to buy into a collapsing Ponzi scheme. They're only going to buy into it if they see that they can make money yep. to keep the thing growing. Including by constantly increasing the migra- the migration intake quota without building the infrastructure or lining up jobs for people or all the things that we used to do, mm. like post-World War Two when we doubled the population in a couple of decades. But that was done with a purpose and it was done in an organised way where, and, you know, a lot of people, oh, well, you know, the old F off with full T-shirts. and mm-hmm. No, that's just dumb. Mm. This continent's nearly empty. The mm. point is people are economy. Yeah. They've got that much right. They bring in, but they all they, all they do is bring people in, increase aggregate demand, increase inflation, while lowering living standards and suppressing wages because that's what the banks want to mm. keep everyone indebted to their eyeballs until 30 years after they're dead. Mm, yeah. So this term, bankocracy, we should make that stick because that's really what we have. It's just another element in this central bankers' dictatorship that we've mapped out here. But meantime, 
build the opposition to it. And as part of that growing opposition, I'll also mention that we just had the 21st Australian Local Government Council, uh, Edward River Council in the Riverina in New South Wales that passed a resolution uh, and they wrote that resolution endorsed um, a public post office bank and the council wrote uh, to the um, federal member demanding that this uh, notion be put on the table and discussed because mm. we need public banking. And their local member is, uh, I believe, the deputy opposition leader, huh, okay. Suzanne Lay. Yeah, so. yeah, that, yeah, that's right. So they've written to her um, and you know, everything that our supporters out there can do to get this option on the table because, you know, if there's a clear solution on the table, this stuff that Jim Chalmers is talking up, and putting forward is going to be shown for the fraud that it is because it's not like they can say oh there's no other way we're in a crisis we have to have this well hang on there is another way and that other way 21 councils have voted up Mm -hmm. numerous other as we just went through newspaper articles are talking about even in the mainstream press and the man on the street Absolutely. Even if they've never heard of a public banking option, yep. go and talk to them. They'll straight away say, oh, yeah, that's obvious. Let's yep. do it. And remind them that it used to be obvious to the Labor Party too, and they fought tooth and nail for it for 50 years. Yep. And now this mug is just going <laughs> to give it all away because the banks told him he should. That's right. Okay, now a slight change of pace, although not unrelated, uh, is our second topic. Canadian detainee shows China was right about spying. Um, Now, we'll get into the meat of it in a moment of what this story is about, but I wanted to um, segue by just saying that, you know, we were just talking about a a central bank dictatorship and uh, you reported this morning, Richard, on an adjunct to that notion Um, with an article that was written about the McBride case, which shows that in addition to those kind of economic uh, control over policy, that there's also um, in the wings, as it always has been whenever austerity is threatened, um, because if you impose austerity on the people to save the banks and the financial system, you must have a backup plan in case they don't voluntarily do it. Mm. Um, and this um, notion comes from the McBride case, where David McBride's case was tried in court um, last week, if not the week before, I think it was last week. Um, and the result of it was that his de- attempted defence to say, um, you know, I was acting for the public good, mm. was overturned, essentially, and there was a commentary written on, on this by one Bronwyn Kelly who essentially said, look, you know, if you don't recognise a public interest acting in the benefit, to the benefit of a public interest, mm. then basically you could end up with a military dictatorship where the, the military, yeah. our defence forces are answerable only to the Crown and not to the people. Yeah, because... What the Crown argued and the court accepted in prosecuting McBride is that a soldier's sole duty is to obey orders and that their only duty in Australia's, in, in Australia's case, according to their oath of service, which the government also takes, virtually, members of parliament also take a virtually identical oath, their only service is to the king or queen of England, a foreign country, mm. whose uh, we're about to import one of their top central bankers to run ours. Um, there's another uh, tie-in for you. Mm. And, uh, yeah, and that if they order... So, basically, Adolf Eichmann and all of those guys would have been... They would have been acquitted 
If the Nuremberg trials yes. were held in Canberra, they would have been acquitted. They'd have got off scot-free because they were just following orders. That's right. Because that's all you're supposed to Apparently, do, according to the, the Australian Commonwealth Government and the Attorney General's yeah, Department. that's what McBride should have done. Yeah, and so he shouldn't have blown the whistle when he found out about crimes that weren't being prosecuted while people who hadn't committed crimes were being investigated and in some cases prosecuted for political brownie points. Uh, he shouldn't have blown the whistle on all of that uh, because soldiers have no duty to the public only to the Crown. That's yeah. their argument. And she actually says in that article that the Crown is the enemy, enemy of, of the, the people. people. That's that, the implication. Yeah, and that we live in a country where power is ranged against the people, she mm. says, which is true yeah. and always has been. And the Labor Party, again, used to know this. If you go back and read, there was an article just after Whitlam was sacked, mm -hmm. after the Governor-General, the Queen, sacked Whitlam mm -hmm. in 75. And... Uh, uh, um, the Gareth Evans, the... Yeah the uh, Sorry, future foreign minister yes. uh, wrote this article where he had actually had a look at the letter of the law and said, yeah, by, by the letter of the law, the constitution, um, the governor general, who again is the vice regent, the crown's representative, is the absolute dictator mm -hmm. of this country. Mm -hmm. And that's all there is to it. Yeah. And people are starting to realise that again now because of this yeah. McBride case. Yeah, that's right. Um, so McBride, and you can read about this in our Australian Alert Service in a feature article on the back page, you know, he, he's pointing to the double standards and the hypocrisy, which we're going to talk about in another context now, um, in terms of this um, lawsuit that um, a Canadian, hmm. you could call him a Clayton spy, I suppose he wasn't officially a spy, but he was um, close to a spy and he was used by the spy to spy on China, essentially, is mm. the bottom line. Um, and he's now suing his government for using him in such way. So this fellow, Michael um, Spaver, uh, he was one of the two detainees known as the two Michaels, Michael Spaver and Michael Kovrig, who were detained in China in December 2018. And it happened right after the um, Huawei Executive Meng Wanzhou had been detained by the Chinese. By the Canadians. Uh, by the Canadians, I should say. Yeah. Uh, at the instruction of the United States, she was passing through and was detained in Canada. And, of course, all of the media said that China detained the two Michaels in retaliation. Hmm. Now, the timing of the arrests may have been related. You know, I mean, uh, certainly they were released a few days after... Um, after the, the Americans dropped their phony charges against um, against Miss uh, Meng, but mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, the whole line about this oh, there's arbitrary detention, arbitrary detention. You can these cut and paste phrases that the media all use, just just given to them by government talking heads, and mm. they repeat them, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so yeah, so yeah. so now this fellow Michael um, Spaver yeah. has shown he's. In his court case, he has revealed yeah. that China was quite justified in detaining him and his friend, his colleague, um, and so he's yeah. made that very clear. Well, it, I think it hasn't actually gone to court yet, but it's a suit that they've that he and he's put up through his lawyer, yeah. um, a guy who's dealt with these national security type matters before in um, Toronto, from Toronto. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, so what happened is um, these two Michaels, this Michael Spaver was a businessman. He lived in China, but his work was in Korea. He owned a company that was, um, I don't remember the name of it, but it had a Korean 
sounding name. Yep. He's speaks fluent Korean. He was one of he's one of the few Westerners ever to have met personally with uh, Kim Jong Un, the mm. the uh, the president or whatever he's called in uh, chairman or whatever they call him in, mm. in North Korea. But he, you know he's the man, um, and uh, arranged Dennis Rodman's trips over yeah. there, uh, and and Dennis Rodman, the former basketballer, retired basketball star who became friends with with Kim Jong Un, and then helped. He he did a lot of uh, sort of back channel diplomacy during the standoff over their missile program and all of that. So this guy um, Spaver, he was. Um, he had these connections. He met with senior ministers. He knew Kim Jong Un personally. Um, so he, but he also worked for the Canadian Foreign Affairs Department. No, no, the, the other guy, Coverig, did. Oh, Coverig, sorry, yeah. yes. So, okay. so he, so, so Michael Coverig, the other oh, of yeah. the two Michaels, befriends this guy and uses him as an intelligence source. Yes. Plies him with drinks, pumps him for information, and maybe they actually were friends. I don't know. So Coverig was a diplomat. Coverig worked... was a diplomat, uh, but he, that's not all he was, and yeah. hence the thing about Clayton's spies because. Canada pretends it doesn't have a foreign intelligence service. Mm-hmm. It has its CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, analogous to ASIO here. Um, but uh, it claims not to have a foreign intelligence service. We don't run spies. But it has this other thing called the Global Security Reporting Program and the officers, the diplomatic staff who are uh, attached to that program are just no, also known by the initialism as GSRPs. And so Canada's GSRPs, these diplomatic officers, are effectively intelligence officers, but they claim they're not spies, mm. even though they do all the work that um, official cover spies do, including stuff that by their own charter they're not supposed to do, farming um, these uh, covert, these uh, human intelligence sources and Playing them for information, like this guy, uh, like uh, Michael Spaver is alleging that Michael Coverig did to him, mm. and got him arrested and locked up for spying. Uh, or there's some official name for it uh, about you know, um, basically mis misdealing, like uh, illegally accessing and passing on state secrets and all this sort of stuff. Um, but I mean, this guy's basically a yeah, is, is he? Is sort of he's functionally a spy, and even his former boss, mm. the former um, yeah. ambassador, says, "I have, I have no doubt the Chinese regarded him as a spy." That's right. So this is not an arbitrary case, and he also said that they spent the first half of his detention, I think it was, it's in the article here, but spent a very long time interrogating him about yeah. this global security reporting program and his and his role in it. That is not an effort one wastes on someone who's been arbitrarily detained as a hostage. No. That you just sit him in a cell until you didn't have any more use for him and let him go. You wouldn't be bothering to do all of that, mm, right? Mm-hmm. So whatever else it was, it was not arbitrary. No, that's right. So China was within their rights to say, okay, we're potentially being spied on here. Hmm. Uh, it was, yeah, it was, wasn't something that was just done in retaliation for the Huawei case. Um, so again, this brings apart the facade of, um, you know, the whole fabric of, propaganda Mm. about China Um, and it also calls into question some of the other cases. I mean, here's Australia. Uh, We we won't um, intervene in the case of Julian Assange or Daniel Duggan. Mm. Um, There's another case where Australian authorities arrested this Sydney businessman, Alexander Sergo, for reckless foreign interference tantamount to espionage and that's a 
just a complete it, shambles of a... It's a complete a... furphy. He was in Shanghai during the border closures with COVID and was hired by a couple of people who he says he suspected might have been spooks, but he didn't know. And he fed them fake information. He wrote research. He's, a, he's an advertising guy, uh, a bit of business intelligence work and stuff, because you have to have a head for that if you're in, you know, going to be a successful uh, international advertising executive. But So he writes research reports based on publicly available information and supposed interviews and discussions with uh, people like Kevin Rudd and uh, senior diplomatic officials and so on. Um, that didn't actually happen. He just made them up. Mm. He just pretended to have spoken to these people and here's what they said. Fed them a line of bull and got paid for it, basically. Was worried about getting arrested while he was in China. When he finally gets back to Australia and thinks, phew, I'm glad that's all over. Then Australia arrests him mm. for foreign interference for things that did not happen, mm -hmm. that they know didn't happen, mm. and for writing research reports based on public, public information. information because... They say the people he wrote them for worked for Chinese security, and that's good enough. I mean, talk about an arbitrary arrest and detention. Well, that, that's right. Who's acting arbitrarily? And then, you know, and you, wanted, you mentioned yeah. um, uh, Meng Wanzhou before. The Americans made up a charge mm -hmm. that has no standing under international law or Canadian law mm. about sanctions, about Huawei breaching sanctions on Iran. Mm. Well, unilateral sanctions are illegal. The yeah. Americans get to impose them because they control a good chunk of the world's banking system. Yes. But well, I was going to, um, if you remember it, what, what did even Barnaby Joyce brought this up the other day in regard mm. to America trying to extend its reach to Julian mm. Assange, who, you know, yeah. cannot come under American law. Yeah, more fabricated, politically motivated charges because the Espionage Act that he's alleged to have breached doesn't, it doesn't, it shouldn't, it's not supposed to apply to journalists and publishers, and it's certainly not supposed to apply outside the United States. Mm. It's what they call extraterritoriality, right? They insist that they rule the world and that their law applies everywhere and that maybe constitutional protections apply to Americans. Mm. Often not, but officially they do, but not to everyone else. Mm. So we're supposed to be subject to America's laws everywhere in the world, mm. but not get the protections for its, you know, freedom of the press shall not be abridged and all of this stuff, right? Yeah, so, so Barnaby so that, Joyce slammed it very effectively. Yeah, he said either we have sovereignty or we don't. If, if extraterritorial has effect, he said it's not about Julian Assange. It's about who we are, mm -hmm. as, who we are as Australians. And he said if extraterritorial, if extraterritorial, I'll try that again. <laughs> <laughs> if extraterritoriality applies, then we are nobody. Yeah. And, yeah. That's, and that's the point. Are you a sovereign country or not? Mm. Do your citizens have rights or do they not? Yeah, and another Australian citizen is Daniel Duggan, and there's been some developments in that case because, of course, the US wants to ex extradite him to mm. deal with him as well. Yeah, yet another arbitrary detention based on politically motivated charges. That, mm -hmm. um, and it's basically acknowledged that he didn't break any Australian law. Mm -hmm. He's alleged to have trained Chinese military pilots, which wasn't illegal, and the American government knew about and didn't care. The British... Um, allegedly some Australian pilots were involved in this training school in South Africa. None of it was illegal, but they've decided that they wanted it to have been illegal now. And so they just make up a charge and arrest him. Australia arrests this guy and locks him up in solitary confinement on our own soil yep. at the behest of the Americans when under our uh, extradition treaty with the Americans, unless it's illegal in both countries, you cannot be arrested and extradited and they've mm. just done it anyway. 
So, you know, arbitrary detention. And now they're trying to seize his, his uh, wife's property. Mm -hmm. And they wrote it, and it's just come out that they wrote in the affidavit because the American courts said, oh, we should seize this property. They're trying to stop him being able to fund, or stop his family being able to fund his legal defence and be you know, able to afford to live in the meantime because, mm -hmm. you know, they've got six kids. Um, and uh, so they're trying to sell this multi-million dollar block of land that they bought in better times or that his wife owns through her company. And it's nothing to do with him, legally speaking. They have no right to put a lien on this property, but they, they just... So the Australian Federal Police just wrote out fake information on the affidavit. And then when they got caught, they said, oh, oops, sorry, didn't mean to do that. Mm -hmm. But we're still going to seize the property. Yeah. So that's before the court now, and it's awaiting... Duggan's lawyers have argued that it should just be thrown out as it should be. The whole case should have been thrown out from the get-go by yeah. the Attorney General. Should have turned around and said to the Americans, what are you even talking about? You know, Come back to us when you've got some real charges. Mm. But of course, that's not the point, is it? Yep. No, it's all part of the whole corruption that attaches us at the hip to the US Anglo-American, um, you know, uh, uh, hegemonic mm. empire at the moment. And you can read all the details of that uh, story on the two Michaels in this week's Australian Alert Service. And also Richard wrote an article previously about, you know, which is raised by this whole affair, um, the Australian journalist detained in China, Chang Lei. Mm. Um, it's interesting because, you know, she has said she can't speak about yeah, what yeah, went yeah. on. She, the Chinese say, well, they released her. They said, you've done your time. Again, a, a thing to do with... She, she worked for the Chinese international state broadcaster and she allegedly... Uh, she was convicted of having um, misused secret information, right? Mm. Breached, con breached confidentiality. Um, now, I don't... Again, I don't know Miss Lei, uh, Miss uh, Cheng, I should say. Her Chinese names are the other way around. Um, but uh, in any case, she's home now and the Chinese say, yeah, you've done your time, off you go. Mm. Who's ordered her to be quiet about this? Mm. Who has the authority to do that? Well, it's ASIO. That's the only agency I'm aware of, um, you know, which means the Commonwealth Government mm. has said, don't talk about the details. And as you see in this case of Michael um, Spaver, there's, sometimes there's people that are being used, mm. but they don't know they're being used as a yeah, spy. Exactly. So you have to bring that into account. But that's all we've got time for to discuss that this week. And I just want to remind everybody, um, go to the links below if you haven't contacted your local MP or um, the offices of the Treasurer and Shadow Treasurer. Please do so because we can beat this central bank dictatorship uh, and we can do it now. So, yeah, thanks, Richard. Thanks, Elisa. Thanks for tuning in and see you again next week. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.